Welcome. Here at Waterstone, we invite you to find your story within God's bigger story. We are a church that lives for a story bigger than ourselves, what Jesus called the kingdom of God. We are passionate to proclaim his kingdom and demonstrate his love, justice, and mercy to our neighbor here and around the world. This series unpacks how we, the people of Waterstone, learn to live and love like Jesus through three life rhythms we call transform, neighbor, and restore. We're glad that you've joined us. If you are interested in attending in person, our weekend services happen every week on Saturday evenings at 5 or Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. We are in the middle of a series called We Are Waterstone. And whenever I hear the phrase, we are Waterstone, or we were talking about this series, I can't help but think of my high school uh, basketball coach who used to say, we are stallions. And we would say, yes, we are. It was like the cheesiest thing that we ever did. Um, And I don't think that this title is actually cheesy, but that's just what's been going through my mind. So I thought I'd share it with you. (laughs) But We Are Waterstone has been a, a series where we've been looking at who we are as a church and who we want to be. And so we've kind of been talking through our our mission statement and and our three rhythms over the last few weeks. And so Larry kicked off the series talking about transformation, the way God's kingdom is coming inside of us and how he's shaping and molding us more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And then we had a guest speaker last week, Luke Matthewson, who came and talked to us about Jesus and how part of being the church of God is, is following after his heart and serving others before we serve ourselves. And today I'd like to take um, a moment to talk about neighboring. And when we talk about neighboring, I think that we have to acknowledge something, and and that is that neighboring in our cultural moment is incredibly difficult. This is how we define the term neighboring here at Waterstone. We seek to invite others to find their story within God's larger story as we proclaim and demonstrate the way of Jesus through prayer, conversation, and invitation. And I say that this kind of call to neighboring, inviting others to find their story in God's story is incredibly challenging in our cultural moment because let's be real, our culture has shifted drastically over the last 20 years. We now live in a a post-Christian society and that that we used to be kind of relatively all defined by Judeo-Christian values and, and that defined morality and it no longer does. We live in a a post-modern society where no one really believes in ultimate truth. And we live in a a religiously pluralistic society where truth and religion are, are actually just a matter of preference, not fact. And being a Christian in this space, it's led to some drastic changes in our culture where we can often find ourselves feeling like the minority in a culture that is rapidly moving away from everything we were familiar with. And if you've ever experienced that feeling and just kind of thought, where in the world are we going as a nation, as a society, as a culture, you're not alone. And actually, statistically, that feeling is backed up. Gallup just released this past April a study that revealed for the first time since they have been tracking this, there are less people affiliated with the church than who are. And so for the first time since they've been tracking this, only 47% of Americans say that they are affiliated or involved at any level with a church. But even more disturbing than that number is the, the rapid rate at which that reality has come about. See, 20 years ago, it was closer to 68 to 70% of people in our country were affiliated and associated with the church. 
So we've just seen this massive exodus of people out of the church, and we've seen a, a, a reluctancy from our culture from people to engage with the church. And in this shift, th- those statistics, I, I don't want to depress anyone, but they actually get a little worse because when you look at generational numbers, what we find is that Gen X is less affiliated with the church than baby boomers. And millennials, my generation, are less affiliated with the church than the generation before them. And Generation Z, this upcoming generation, is less affiliated with the church than any generation previously. And the question for us is, in this cultural moment, what does it look like to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people who are fleeing the church and people who want nothing to do with the church? And for many of us, those statistics are, are, are not just statistics. Let's be honest, those, those statistics are our friends. There are family members, there are kids, there are parents, there are coworkers. A few years ago, actually 10 years ago, when I came on staff at Waterstone, we kind of started this rhythm of neighboring and it kind of became part of who we were as a church. And I remember having conversations about making sure everyone in the church was praying for people who didn't know Jesus that we were in proximity to, that we had close relationship with. And I remember 10 years ago as that conversation was happening that that I felt convicted because no one in my immediate friend group uh, was unchurched. We had just moved here, we were working in a church, and my wife was going to seminary at a Christian school, and so everyone we knew knew Jesus. This summer, though, as we kind of talked through the rhythm of neighboring, what I've realized is is that same conversation of praying for people who, who I know don't know Jesus is that I would actually say over half of my friends fall into that category. But what was heartbreaking for me is that I, I realized that it was predominantly the same friends. That over a 10 year period, over half of my friends have have walked away from the church. And in that cultural moment, when people who have heard the story of Jesus, people I have prayed with and read scripture with, want nothing to do with the church, what does it look like to share the good news of Jesus? I know I'm not alone. Many of you have stories of friends and family members that you have prayed with, who you have sat beside, who no longer consider themselves followers of Jesus. And and I think it's important for us to recognize the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Because when we talk about neighboring, when we talk about sharing our faith, when we talk about bringing people into the kingdom of God, that is what we are facing. And I would add not without some merit. But how do we as the people of God step into this moment to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those who want nothing to do with the church or those who have already left it? And I think today where we have to start is with the heart of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus. And so we're gonna examine the heart of Jesus in Luke 15 that Maya just read. And then I would like us as we're doing that to kind of reflect on our own hearts and and where our hearts are maybe in alignment with Jesus and maybe where they're out of alignment with Jesus. And then my hope is to, to, if we have any time left after those two things, is to try to talk through a couple practical ways that we can kind of engage with this rhythm of neighboring at Waterstone. And so to start looking at the heart of Jesus, I don't know if there's a passage in scripture that reveals the heart of Jesus more deeply than Luke 15. It's a story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. 
And when you look at the story of the lost sheep, what you see is Jesus' heart for the lost. This is the way that this story begins in Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious elite, the insiders, muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And what we see from the very beginning is that Jesus has a heart for the lost. Jesus loves the lost. And you've got to kind of get in the weeds and the details of the story to see that. But, but what we see, and we've got to kind of define, what do we mean when we say lost? Because some people might take offense to that term. Like, what you, I'm not lost. I know where I'm at. I know what I'm doing in life. I'm fair. What do you mean by lost? Biblically, the religious elite, they would call and label people lost when they believed those people were out sinning God's grace. That there was no way those people could ever be welcomed into the community of God. That they were so sinful, so disgusting, that they were outside the bounds of God's ability to save them. The sinners, the tax collectors, the unacceptable. And this is the people that Jesus loves. And what we see in this story is that not only does he love them, but there's this interesting phrase Luke used to say that they were gathering around Jesus to hear him teach. And the language Luke is using there is actually more akin to this was constantly happening. These people could not leave Jesus alone. They were always coming around him. These parties, these dinners were happening constantly. Jesus could not spend enough time with these people. And it's blowing the Pharisees' mind because these are the people who are not supposed to be welcome in the community. And beyond that, Jesus isn't just trying to teach them to change them. He is accepting them. You can hear it in the tone of the religious elite when they say, this man eats with sinners and welcomes them to his table. Or even worse, goes to their table. You see, in that day, it wasn't just going to eat with someone that you didn't like and someone might see you and be like, wow, I didn't know you, okay, that's fine. When you ate with someone, it was giving them your full acceptance and stamp of approval. And the Pharisees don't have a category for how Jesus, a religious teacher, could give full acceptance to people who are sinners and outside the bounds of God's grace, who are so far, so helplessly removed from God's commands and demands that they could ever be welcomed. And Jesus is saying, these are the people I love. These are the people I accept. The unacceptable. And I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we love the lost like Jesus? Do we love the lost like Jesus? You see, I think for some of us, we have a really hard time with this statement that, that Jesus fully accepts sinners. For many of us, when we hear that statement that Jesus fully accepts sinners, we, we always need to add a but to the end of that. We always need to say, yeah, of course Jesus loves sinful people, but. And so we've, we've kind of done this thing with the gospel where we've reverse engineered it and we say that the gospel starts with repentance and then God will accept you. So if you're gay, you need to become straight and then God will accept you. If you are a racist, then you need to, to figure that out and then God will accept you. If you're a Democrat, then 
Well, actually, probably Jesus can't do anything about that. So, <laughs> And we create all these barriers for people that say, because you are in this camp or this defines you or you have this identity, then Jesus does not accept you until you work through that and figure it out. But I don't know about you, that was not the gospel that was preached to me or the gospel that I was drawn to Jesus with. It was that Jesus accepted me despite my sin, despite my issues, despite the ways that I'm a screw up and a mess up and despite the ways that I continually hurt people in my life. That Jesus accepts that and of course once he's accepted me I've been transformed and changed and I'm not the same person I was 20 years ago but, but by God's grace I was accepted first. People repent when they feel the safety of acceptance. And somehow we have reversed that story and told people that they have to repent of who they are in order for them to be invited and welcomed into our community. And we see the opposite way of life with Jesus where he is accepting and invites these people into his community before they were changed. Do we love the lost like that? And the Pharisees, they just couldn't understand this idea from Jesus that the sinners would be accepted. And, and so not understanding how Jesus could love and accept the sinner and the tax collector, Jesus tries to tell a story to kind of explain to them what he's doing. And so he shares this parable of the lost sheep. He says, suppose one of you, again, talking to the religious leaders, trying to place them in the story. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country or in the wilderness and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and then Jesus goes on to say, and carries it home. See, not only does Jesus love the lost, but Jesus actively pursues the lost. He pursues the lost those who are considered outside the bounds of God's grace, who are so hopelessly lost that God could never find them. Jesus says, I pursue them until I find them. Is there someone in your life that you've ever given up on? Someone that you've given up on and thought they're just too far from the grace of God or there's no way they'll ever come back to church with me or or there's no way that, that, that God will ever reach them. They have just run too far. I've had those moments of, of people I dearly, dearly love. God never has. There is no one that God has given up on. He pursues until he finds them. Jesus' heart is that he pursues the lost. And so many of us, we have a functional view of God where God is is distant and aloof and removed and detached and, and passively involved in our lives. And yet what we see in the heart of Jesus in this parable is that God is not detached or passive at all. He is actively pursuing those who people think are too far gone. The question for us is, is do we share that same tenacity? Do we pursue the lost? Do we give up on people and think they're outside of the bounds of God's grace or do we chase after them with everything that we have? And see, I love this story because some of us who are here that we might even consider ourselves the lost sheep. 
We might even consider ourselves someone who, who just wandered away from God and isn't really sure where we fit in the community of God and is kind of confused about what God is doing in the world. And, and we're kind of like the lost sheep and that, that we're frightened and we're confused and, and, and we might even be injured because of the things that have been done to us in life. And to that sheep, Jesus picks them up, puts them on the shoulder and carries them home to safety. See, Jesus not only pursues those who are lost and and out of bounds, he pursues those who have even been wounded by the religious people that told them they didn't belong in the first place. That's his heart. Do we share that heart? Because if we struggle with this idea that, that Jesus loves the sinner and accepts them fully, I, and we sometimes play gatekeepers to God's grace, I think when it comes to pursuing the lost, some of us are even more reserved. Because it's one thing to love someone, it's another thing to pursue them. And recently I was on Facebook, and it was just more confirmation that, that none of us should ever go there. It's just a bad place, right? It's just not good. But I was on Facebook, and I came across this story from, from a, a woman who I used to go to church with. Her kids were in the youth group with me when I was in high school, and, and she was sharing this story about how she'd recently gone to a baseball game. And at this baseball game, she was so disgusted by the people who were sitting behind her because of the way they were dressing, the way they were talking, the stories they were saying, that she said she could never, ever go to a baseball game again. She was just going to give it up because people were too disgusting, acting too foolish for her to want to be around that. And my heart was broken in that moment and convicted. So if we can't sit in a baseball game with the lost, how could we ever sit next to them in church? See, the reality is for many of us, we have trouble pursuing the lost because if we're honest with ourselves, we're not sure we actually like them. And again, in our cultural moment, I I understand that sentiment to a degree because if, if we're honest with ourselves, there are people in our society, in our culture, who are actively against the church. They do not want the church to succeed. They would love to see every church closed. They do not like Christians. And yet, the heart of Jesus is that even when people are against him, even when people want to see his church fail, he is always for them. Because even if you are against Jesus, he will never be against you. Do we share that heart Are we willing to pursue the people who actively hate us? See, we have to recover this notion that lost people are lost. I think we come up with a lot of other names for them. They're they're not lost, they're stupid. Or they're disgusting, or they're foolish, or they're our enemies, or they're evil, or they're bad. No, they're lost. They're searching should invoke compassion in us, not condemnation. When we think of people who are searching and trying to find a way home, trying to find a way back to safety, are we there to pursue them and bring them back to the place they belong? Or would we say, not sorry.
What would it look like for us to be a church that that is pursuing the lost and sitting next to people that we're not sure if they're going to offend our friends on the other shoulder? See, not only does Jesus, though, love the lost and pursue the lost, I love this story because the the climax of the story is not when Jesus finds the sheep and takes it home. The, The climax happens after that when Jesus throws a party. Have you ever wondered what causes God to celebrate or what causes Jesus to laugh in joy? It's lost sheep being found. This is how he finishes the story. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not repent. Jesus is ecstatic. Heaven throws a party and a celebration when lost sheep, lost people are found. I know so many people who, I I just kind of think it's comical. So many of my friends, they hate their birthdays. They they just hate being celebrated. They feel like it's an inconvenience. And you've probably been there too. You've been out to eat with your friends. You've been having a good time. And then all of a sudden, the entire wait staff comes over and starts singing happy birthday to you. You just want to crawl under the table and, and you wish you could die at that moment, right? Like we don't like being celebrated. There's something about us that feels like we're unworthy of being celebrated. We don't want to be the center of attention. We don't want people calling attention. We don't want to inconvenience anyone. What Jesus is saying is that you are worthy of being celebrated, that if you are a follower of Jesus, if he has found you, there is a celebration in heaven like you cannot begin to imagine. There is a party that went on that you cannot begin to understand. The joy and the laughter that was taking place in that space. Is that what fills us with joy? Is that what we celebrate? The loss being found. You see, I think to, to live a life where we are, are causing heaven to celebrate means that we are an invitational people, inviting them to the celebration. We love them, we pursue them, and we invite them into the celebration of who Jesus is and what he has done. Let me ask it a, a little more, more pointedly. Do we live a life that causes heaven to rejoice and celebrate When was the last time that you potentially felt anxious because you were in a spiritual conversation with someone that you didn't know if you had all the answers to? When was the last time that that you felt somewhat awkward with a friend because you were trying to get the courage to invite them to Alpha and you just thought, I don't know, this feels kind of weird. When was the last time you sat through a, a service at, at Waterstone or another church and, and you felt nervous and, and, and anxious because you didn't know what Larry or I would say that would cause the person that you brought sitting next to you to, to feel embarrassed or feel unsure of what we meant? And I'm just kidding. Larry would never say anything like that, so you don't have to worry about it. Me, on the other hand, maybe, but... <laughs> Do we step into those moments, those spaces, that awkwardness, that, that, that place where we are anxious because we don't know if we have the answers? Those are, are the ways that we engage with people that lead to the moments where heaven celebrates and rejoices. And I, I think if we're honest, most of us, we, I, I really believe this. We share the heart of Jesus. We love the lost. When we think of our friends and our family, we think that that we want them to to be in relationship with Jesus. 
And many of us are pursuing people in our lives and, and we want to engage them with the gospel. And, and I just need to caveat this whole conversation. As I'm asking about if you're inviting people to Alpha or inviting them to church, it's not so that, that they join our programs. That's not the point of neighboring. We could care less if, if Waterstone is the place that they land and, and the place that they make church. We're not after butts in seats. We are after people who encounter the living God because we believe he is the most transformational, powerful, loving being to ever exist and that meeting him changes your life forever. That is the encounter we're after. We don't need more people in small groups. We don't need more people in the worship center. We want people to meet Jesus. Are we willing to risk it and step into those spaces? And I, I think for many of us, we are. We just feel poorly equipped to know how to do that. We have the heart of Jesus. We love the lost. We're pursuing the lost. And we just think, I don't know what to do because this world is crazy. And so I, I want to give just a, a couple of quick handholds, a, a couple of quick things that I think we, the ways we talk about neighboring can be fairly helpful in giving you some concrete understanding of, of how you could engage in a neighboring relationship with someone uh, near you. And, and I need to say this, if you're here today and you were invited by someone and you think this is really weird, I feel like I'm getting like a, a, a seat to something that I didn't expect today, we're, we're not trying to do this because we think you're a project or because we think that, that, that there's something wrong with you. We just think that Jesus is incredible and that, that he can change your life. And so when we talk about neighboring, there's really three ways that we try to engage with this rhythm of life we call neighboring. And the first one is that, that we invite you and we would ask you to pray for your lost friends, for your lost coworkers, for your classmates, for your roommates who do not know Jesus. And when we say pray for them, I mean pray for them. Know what's going on in their lives. Have a relational connection where you know the things they're struggling with that you can pray for. We think that when we pray for people in our lives, it, it embeds this love and passion for them. But don't just pray for people. Pray with people. If you're in a relationship with a neighbor who's going through something, they're struggling, pray with them. Don't just say, oh, I'll be praying for that. It's amazing to me the number of people I encounter. We live in a time where people are so, so spiritual. So many of my lost friends, they spend a lot of time praying to the universe. They're open to prayer. Invite them into that space. Let them hear your conversation with God. Most people I encounter have no objection to being prayed for. In fact, I saw this play out in college, and if I've shared this story with you, please forgive me, but I think it's, it's worth sharing again. In college, there was a, a town that everybody hung out in. There was a street called Dixon Street, and so on the weekends, everybody would go to Dixon Street, and they would just do what a lot of college kids do in a college town, and they would get drunk, and they would hook up, and there was all sorts of things going on, and drugs, and fights, and there would be these preachers who would stand at the corner, and they would yell condemnation at these people. You're going to hell if you dress that way. You're going to hell for drinking that, or you're going to hell for this... And people would fight them. I wanted to fight them at times. They were terrible. And nobody engaged with them other than in confrontation. But I'll never forget one weekend we were down there and, and we saw a girl who was simply sitting on a bench and, and had a sign like a panhandler. And all it said is free prayer for anyone who needs it. She had a line around the block of people who were drunk 
people who were doing all sorts of things, people who were high, people who had been in fights, people, they were open to prayer. And so we pray for people and we pray with people. Not only that, we, we want you to engage with your neighbors in, in spiritual conversations. And I think for many of us, this is where the water begins to get a little murky. It, it's really easy to pray for someone, and it's, a, it's maybe a little bit harder, but fairly easy to pray with someone. But actually engaging in spiritual conversations, it, it can kind of feel sometimes like a weird infomercial. Like someone comes to you and they say, golly, I'm, hope we're not quite there yet. Oh, shoot, that's okay. <laughs> I jumped the gun on Tara. It, it can feel like a weird infomercial where we're, we're trying to just say like, hey, have you met Jesus? Like someone comes up and is like, yeah, I just found out my wife's leaving me, my house burned down, my kids hate me. And you're like, have you met Jesus? It feels so inauthentic, right? It's like, how do I just like slip in? It feels like product placement in a weird way. And what advertisers will tell you that in product placement, there's a difference between product placement and product integration. Product placement is where the, the product is just a prop. So it's a cereal box that's sitting on the counter. No one interacts with it. It's just there. And it really actually cheapens the product. Because you see it and you're like, why is Starbucks all of a sudden in the, I didn't even know Starbucks existed in this universe. Like, what are we doing? Right? And it cheapens the product and it often cheapens the storyteller. And so what advertisers do is they try to find a way to, to integrate the product into the plot of the story, have the characters interact with it. And we've seen a lot of examples and you just saw them two minutes ago. But E.T. with Reese's Pieces, who didn't want Reese's Pieces after E.T. or who wouldn't love to buy a James Bond Aston Martin or FedEx? Their sales went crazy after Castaway because it was integral to the plot. When we are engaging with people in spiritual conversations, if Jesus is not fully and wholly integrated into our lives, it will feel inauthentic and like weird product placement. And as followers of Jesus, we have to be, be fully invested and engaged with Jesus in order to bring that into our relationship with others. And this week, I was trying to think through, okay, what does engagement actually look like in the moment? And I happened to be listening to a sermon by Matt Chandler where he had a, a very succinct way of kind of talking about how we can get to spiritual conversations with people. And, and I wanted to share with you, I want to give him credit so I'm not stealing, but, but he talks about how everywhere he goes, whether it's to the, to the coffee shop he goes to five times a week or the, the gym he goes to maybe one time every two weeks or of that rate, that's true for all of us is that he looks for surface conversations. So where are those surface conversations where someone's just like, hey, pretty hot for September, right? This kind of sucks. <laughs> and where those surface conversations move to an opening for serious conversation. My kid is feeling really lonely in high school. To a spiritual conversation. And that sounds really difficult. I would love to talk more with you about that. You see, and so we can move from, from surface conversations to serious conversations to spiritual conversations. People around us are, are hungry and lonely and lost and searching. Are we willing to, to step in and engage them with where they're at in the love and pursuit of Jesus? And then finally, when we talk about neighboring, we often talk about pray and engage and then invite 
And I think, again, this is where this idea, this art of neighboring, this relational style of of being with people to share who Jesus is with them, it can begin to break down because invite to what? Invite to what? I mean, some of my friends, the last place they want to go is to step into a church on Sunday morning. So what are we inviting them to? That's why Waterstone tries to create environments where, where people can have a good interaction with the church for hopefully once in their life, like the, the brewery night or, or the fair at Waterstone or when we've done Waterstone serves like this weekend, they're, they're low barrier to entry places of just saying, hey, come and be with my community. Invite them into this space. I will be honest, I, I don't know that in 2021, inviting someone to come to church with you on a Saturday night or a Sunday morning is the best place for them to enter conversations. There's too much baggage It's not a bait and switch, but build relationships and invite them into some of those places. I think another great option, we've talked about it before, is Alpha. Alpha is a place for people who are lost and searching, people who don't know what they believe and are trying to figure out what they believe. And it's it's conversations that are safe for people to explore that. It's a great place to invite someone who's trying to figure out what they believe. But the truth is, love, invitation is hard. Loving the lost, pursuing the lost, inviting them into our community, it's hard. Invitation is risk. It's risk of rejection. It's risk of social collateral. It's risk of awkward. It's risk of discomfort. It's hard. But love is willing to risk. It is love of the lost that fills us with the desire to pursue them and invite them into our spaces so they can encounter Jesus. It is love that risks rejection. It is love that is willing to take the first step. It is love that is willing to engage with people who do not believe what we do and even might reject us. And, I, and when I think of this idea of inviting people into our space, the, the number one thing I see people struggling with, what I struggle with, is this idea that, that I don't know what to say. In that moment, I won't be equipped, I won't know how to enter that space, and so I just would rather remain silent because I don't want to screw anything up. I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I firmly believe this with all my heart. That is a lie that the church has believed from the pit of hell to keep people from knowing and encountering Jesus Christ. That you are equipped. You have the spirit inside you to have these conversations. That Jesus has designed you for these conversations for this moment. He has given you unique hobbies and abilities and insights and, and unique characteristics to rescue and save and invite the people around you so that they can encounter the love of Jesus Christ. We don't have to be afraid that we won't know what to say. Jesus goes before us. When we started, we talked about Jesus is the one who is pursuing the lost. For some reason, some of us think it's up to us to get there first. We don't realize that Jesus has been speaking to them before we ever open our mouths. We just have to join him where he already is. So Jesus loves the lost. He pursues the lost. 
And he celebrates when the lost are found. Are we a community that celebrates the lost being found? May we, Waterstone, be a community that that heaven grows tired and weary of throwing the celebrations that have to happen because of the stories we are a part of, of lost people being found and encountering our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May that be how we are defined as a church and a community.